0: Welcome to this, the third episode of the Great Wealth Divide podcast series from WBGO Studios. I am your host, Dale Favors. Through this weekly platform, we'll discuss the racial wealth divide between Black and Latinx communities versus white communities in America. Today and in subsequent programs, we'll look at why these disparities exist, including how the historical and continuing factors such as the structural barriers created by systemic economic racism has caused and continues to perpetuate these huge disparities. Additionally, we will explore what can be done and what is being done to provide actionable solutions that will improve the lives within these communities while lifting the country together. We will highlight these solutions being undertaken today and discuss how they will bring balance and parity to Black and Latinx communities when compared to their white counterparts. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge our sponsor. We thank JPMorgan Chase, who is the proud sponsor of the Great Wealth Divide podcast series. J.P. Morgan Chase has committed an additional $30 billion to address the key drivers of the racial wealth divide and to reduce systemic racism against Black and Latinx people. Learn more about what they are doing to address these issues by going to jpmorganchase.com slash pathforward. As we get underway with today's episode, I encourage you, our listeners, to contact us with your questions and or comments. Our email address is tgwd at wbgo.org. Or you can call us at 212-994-9583. That's 212-994-9583. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: The, the fires that took place in the Bronx were not fires that people set. These were arson fires, fires that owners set so they could collect the insurance on their buildings and then walk away.
0: That was one of today's panelists, Nancy Bieberman, founder and president emerita of Wedco, the women's housing and economic development company. She was talking about the arson epidemic of the 1970s and early 1980s, in which building owners deliberately burned down apartments in the South Bronx, all for the purpose of collecting insurance payouts. This mindless tactic destroyed neighborhoods and communities, leaving many homeless, But more on that in the later conversation. Today, we'll be discussing disparities in housing. We'll explore the impact of the tactic redlining employed by many levels of government and in the real estate industry, as well as the implications of decades of disinvestment in black and Latinx communities and other key factors driving the wealth divide. In addition, you'll hear personal stories of opportunities denied as well as we'll see how Lorraine Hansberry's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, A Raisin in the Sun, is still relevant to today's conversation. More importantly, you'll learn about different solutions focused on enhancing fair housing opportunities, increasing home ownership for Black and Latinx buyers with the potential to expand prosperous and wealth-driven communities. In this, the third episode of The Great Wealth Divide. Today, we're pleased to have a group of dynamic thought leaders to discuss a very important issue, which is homeownership as a pathway to building wealth. Our guests today are Eric Richardson, CEO of Growth Development Associates and the creator of the Decisions Decisions Financial Education Platform. Nancy Bieberman, founder and president emeritus of Women's Housing and Economic Development Corporation, also known as WEDCO, and Blair Smith, founder and CEO of Promethean AB Strategies and former CIO of the Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone, also known as UMass. In this segment of The Great Wealth Divide, I'll be talking to each of our three panelists separately and in depth with all three coming together with me on the back end of the segment. Welcome. Today, I want to try to go deep into some of the things relating to inadequate housing, as well as some of the well-designed barriers that were constructed to limit access of home ownership to Black and Latinx buyers. And I was hoping, Blair Smith, can you shed a little light on the term redlining and kind of the historical perspective of what it was all about and how it denied wealth to Black and Latinx families?
2: First, uh, Dale, thank you for having me participate in uh, this morning's discussion. Redlining is a term that is used to describe a discrimination tactic rooted in the turn of the 20th century where both lenders as well as real estate developers, really the real estate industry conspired to keep African-Americans from purchasing homes in certain designated communities. As I was thinking about this morning and the types of information I'd shared, I wanted to share an anecdotal story about my experience growing up in Baltimore, which is a documented example of some of the worst incidences of redlining and how that has affected the African American community there for generations. In my early 20s, I had a, a cousin who's a physician. And uh, they were looking at purchasing a home. They were certainly very creditworthy. The application looked great. And as they reviewed the deed of the home, both the real estate salesperson and my family member was astonished to see that written into the deed was a statement that said that this home could not be sold to or purchased by Negroes. Now, (laughs) certainly (laughs) one... This, this was something that was shocking, and during the negotiation for the purchase of the home, there was a lot of embarrassment on the part of the real estate agent, the developer, et cetera. So that is a stark example of just the type of discrimination that African-Americans were subjected to throughout the history of Baltimore City. Uh, In the early 20th century, the Baltimore City Council passed a local law which effectively barred not just Black people from living on certain blocks that were occupied by whites, but it punished any white person that continued to live in the community where the Black person was or provided any type of assistance to get the Black person into these communities. The the federal government one-upped the city of Baltimore years later with a policy where white people would be guaranteed their loans through the FHA but those loans they refused to back any black applicants. So in other words, as a white homeowner you could get a federally guaranteed FHA loan but as a as a black creditworthy borrower you were not afforded the same guarantee. So that contributes to what you see today. When you see this disparagement of 40% variance in the number of white homeowners versus black homeowners nationwide, it's not really a head scratcher uh, when you examine the
0: history. You brought up a, a lot of good points, and and it got me to thinking about many things. And, and one is the play "Raising in a Son, right, which later was converted into a movie, right? Lorraine Hansberry's play, and later in the in the movie version, you have Sidney Poitier playing. But it's a story of a black family in Chicago that comes into new financial circumstances due to uh, I think the father dies and leaves with an insurance policy, and there is a decision of how to utilize that money, and obviously the mother is looking to buy a home, but wants to buy a home in, in a specific neighborhood, and and at times, she was being discouraged by the uh, agent in providing that access. So I, I think about all these things that were happening and continues to have an impact on our Black and Latinx communities, that is. And so I, I want to ask you, from your role as CIO of of UMass, the Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone, what type of issues did you see that the lack of home ownership and the lack of investment in certain communities how did that have an impact on the, the citizens of those communities?
2: Well, it's a, it's a stark contrast. You, you, all you have to do is take a car and, and drive from Grand Central Station along Park Avenue and drive uptown until you get to 125th and Park. And, and you'll see the incremental transformation of the community by way of the type of services that are provided Trash pickup, vagrancy, you don't see these things in other parts of the city. So the question has to be, is there a challenge in providing equally the same types of city services in one part of the city versus another part of the city? And that can be anywhere. That could be New York, that could be Chicago, that could be in many major cities. A lot of the challenges with particular the catchment area of Harlem where where Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone operates, is that you have a stated AMI, the average medium income, is the same in Harlem as it is on the Upper East Side. And so that in itself, when you, when you look at, okay, we're going to try to create an affordable housing solution, but you're looking at the same formula for AMI that would be applicable to other parts of the city. That in itself creates a challenge to developers and and to any potential occupants living in the community. When you look at some of the syndicate real estate, mixed-use real estate development projects where there is some AMI affordable housing set aside, there's still some challenges for potential renters or buyers because the numbers are just off. And there needs to be
0: a, a, a full examination of that and a rebalancing of that. I, I think that's that's a great way to look at this. And I want to bring Nancy Bieberman in on this because I know, Nancy, you identified some of these things happening throughout the city and in specific areas where there were large populations of Black and, and Latinx people. And so with your organization, the Women's Housing and Economic Development Corporation, what what did you identify and what? What inspired you to start doing this type of work?
1: so i'm I'm trained as a lawyer, and I spent many years uh, representing people who were getting evicted from apartments because they couldn't pay rent, and they couldn't pay rent for many reasons, um most of which people understand, you know, loss of job, you know loss of income from whatever source. And I was representing people who were living in really horrible, horrible conditions, you know, conditions such that you really shouldn't be paying rent. So tenants would get together and go on rent strikes, you know, to, to work as a group to get the owners, the landlords to provide better, you know, to provide repairs and services to these buildings. So for me personally, I you know, I, I did this for a decade and I felt by the end of my time that you know, there was only so many thumbs you could put in the dike and that, you know, part of the problem of affordable housing um, is supply. You know, there isn't enough of it. For many reasons, there isn't enough of it. And for me personally, I decided I wanted to, you know, to learn and then try to do the development side with a focus on affordability, maintaining people in their homes, assisting people if there were some gap in income, some loss of income. When you work in a in a holistic, community-focused way, it's not simply a question of whether or not a tenant in a building is paying rent. The tenant can't pay the rent for some reason. There's you know, there's a reason. And your job as a nonprofit, community-based, affordable housing developer and owner is to make sure that people stay, you know, and not, you know, evict people. And so that's really what I thought It just made more sense for me, and it was logical, doing development and working in a much more comprehensive way in a neighborhood was much more, but it was better for the folks that I wanted to assist. You know, again, how many people can you keep from getting evicted? It's always a thumb-in-the-dike situation, because you're only one person, and there are only uh, a dozen lawyers doing the work that you're working and you're, you're doing, and you really can't. You can't stop evictions, period. Um, you have to work on the supply side as well. So um, I came to the Bronx you know, actually in in the, in the late 80s. And the Bronx at that time was still in the burned out, abandoned stage. You know, the, without going into the details of what happened in New York City that caused the disinvestment and abandonment of so many properties, there they were. I mean, there were thousands, literally thousands of apartments in buildings throughout the Bronx. You know, as per the the redlining issue, the red line in the Bronx, you know, where most of the abandonment took place, was below uh, Fordham Road. So the north and the south of the Bronx, that was the divide. And the city at the time, it became the owner of all these abandoned buildings because after services were withdrawn by these owners, the, the fires that took place in the Bronx were not fires that people set. These were arson fires, fires that owners set so they could collect the insurance on their buildings and then walk away.
0: What you're about to hear is footage from Game 2 of the 1977 World Series at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. In-game commentators Keith Jackson and Howard Cosell are detailing what they are witnessing as the destructive arson fires are destroying communities near the stadium. These deliberate fires continued to disrupt lives in the South Bronx well into the 1980s.
3: That is a live picture, and obviously a major fire in a large building in the South Bronx region of New York City. That's a live picture, and obviously the fire department in the Bronx have their... My goodness, that's a huge place. That's the very area where President Carter trod just a few days ago.
1: And so that's what happened in the Bronx. You know, the fires, the fires that people talk about. These were arson fires designed to get the last nickel out of a property. And so the Bronx and many other areas of New York City, Harlem, Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn and other places, you know we're left in the you know the mid to late 80s with huge numbers of abandoned buildings and thousands i mean thousands of of apartments so the city decided you know after all this that you know maybe we should look at this as an opportunity and not solely as a disaster which it was and the opportunity side of city government at the time said hmm we really do need more housing there are all these buildings Let's just finance the rehabilitation of these buildings and turn them over to nonprofit organizations throughout the city, citywide ones, Catholic Charities, for example, and smaller community-based ones. So I was uh, put in charge of the development of 23 abandoned buildings with 722 apartments as the housing director for Catholic Charities in New York. And, you know, there they were. The money was there. There was no, it was very uncomplicated. It was the most uncomplicated money that I've ever worked with. No AMI issues about, you know, how do you figure out what the rent is in the area? No, the rent was as low as it could possibly be. The buildings had virtually no debt service. All that we needed from these rents was that they were able to pay for the maintenance and operation of the buildings. So these rents could and were kept very low. I mean, these buildings are all up and running throughout the city, and they are the most affordable, to this day, the most affordable housing units throughout the city. So I was, you know, after the three years of the redevelopment of these buildings, I had the opportunity to take a breath and step back and look at what we had done, and I I found myself feeling... This is not right. I mean, what have we done? The buildings were fully rehabilitated, people could move into them, they were safe, they were clean, but the neighborhoods were still in very, very bad condition. Schools had been closed, firehouses had been closed, subway stations had been closed. There was simply no physical or human infrastructure in these abandoned neighborhoods. So, Repopulating the buildings with tenants was, frankly, a recipe for disaster. It, you know, in most places it didn't turn into the disaster that it could have been. But for me personally, you know, I just said,, ah, you know, this isn't good. if you're going to be, if one is going to be responsibly working in a, a community where there's been substantial disinvestment and abandonment really need to be looking at redevelopment in a much more comprehensive
0: way. I think what you identified, right, from the work that you did, even though the work was good, you identified that the disinvestment of the, in that area or the non-investment, let's say, in those particular areas, you could provide housing, but everything else left. So services were, were non-existent. Employment was limited. Access to equitable education, limited. Access to transportation, limited. And so, even though you might have been providing this housing and eliminating the opportunity for homelessness, it continued a certain type of living condition because of all the other elimination of those particular services and items. Is that what you what you saw?
1: Yes, absolutely. And you know, it was it was it was uh, it was very troubling to walk away from a massive development, which you know, city officials could and did stand around admire cut ribbons, and walk away, leaving the nonprofits you know, to manage the buildings, but ill-equipped, deeply, profoundly ill-equipped to address the, you know, the substantial concerns of residents who lived in the building. I mean, people had apartments and there were roofs overheads, but when you walked out the door with your kid... The Streets, you know, the garbage was still not getting picked up. The schools were just terrible. I walked into one school in the a neighborhood where we had just finished our twenty-three building, seven hundred twenty-two apartments, and there were cartoons playing in classrooms, and nobody seemed ashamed of it or, you know, disturbed that an outsider might see it. It was, it was shocking. I mean, it was worse than I than I had imagined, but. You know, it, it really got me and certainly plenty of others before me were thinking, you know, buildings alone, bricks and mortar alone do not restore neighborhoods that have been decimated, systematically and purposefully decimated. And that I and others who wanted to make an impact on you know, quarterly quality of life, of opportunities for folks who live there really need to be thinking in a different way. And so that's what I started
0: to do. I think that's enlightening because if you think about it, we talk about these things today, but they existed then as well. The food deserts that are created in certain neighborhoods where there's a lack of services. And when you talk about the education, I think that education is the platform that leads to all the other things that we're talking about here from creating wealth and preserving wealth from a generational standpoint. I want to bring this to Eric Richardson because I know the work Eric that you're doing at Growth Development Associates and with the creation of the Decisions Decisions financial education platform. Tell us more about some some of the things that you've done and your goals to reach and and touch a number of people with this, obviously with the
3: focus on home ownership. Thank you for that. What we've just learned, what we heard, what we just reviewed is why there's such a wealth divide in this country. We've just heard that systemically, Generation after generation after generation was denied access to wealth building components like home ownership. We're not talking about mega corporations, we're talking about everyday families. Where we're at today is a very interesting point because the barriers that legally and systemically prevented us from building wealth for all those generations are not the barriers that face us today. The capability that we have, normal, everyday working people to build wealth, the availability is here. The missing piece today is education. What I want to focus on is we now can stop that generational divide with decisions we can make today. So without basic fundamental education that should be available to us in high school, we will continue to repeat the decisions or what historically were legal barriers to providing a foundation of financial security for our families. The first one is living paycheck to paycheck. 62% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, and that's disproportional to people of color or in minority communities. And it starts within 30 days of getting your first job. Just one example, when we look at Can we afford a car? The car payment is $400. We look at our our spendable income. We say, I can afford $400. Well, when you make a decision to buy a car, you don't make one decision. You make five decisions because there's gas and fuel and maintenance. And if we're not thinking about those things, by the time you get a car, a job and a place to live, you're already spending more than you can earn for the rest of your life. The second component is credit, which is how we close that gap. And we've never learned how to manage credit. Just one one illustration, a $2,000 credit card balance, because we splurged for Christmas. If we never charge another dime on that card, and we never miss a minimum monthly payment, most people don't know it'll take you 22 years to pay off that credit card, and you pay $8,400 on that $2,000 loan. And that's if that's the only credit card you had. It's not hard to see how we stay in debt for the rest of our lives if we've never learned how to manage credit. Third component, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more deeply, is home ownership. We never learned about investment. And our people think that we don't have enough money to pay investment. Heck, I can't even pay my bills. One illustration. If we stop at Starbucks every day on the way to work, that's $4 for that latte with the cream and the whipped cream and the straw and a cup of coffee. $4 a day times 22 working days a month is $88 a month. $88 a month into an average mutual fund is a half a million dollars between age 20 and age 50. I'm not telling you don't buy coffee. I'm just telling you how much it costs. There are fundamental decisions you have to make as an adult that we never learn to make. The biggest one, the platform, the foundation of our financial security is owning your own home. Today, you can get a loan. 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 80 years ago, our grandparents and our parents had difficulty getting home. Today, you can get a home loan if you can pay rent you could have bought a home. If you can pay rent, you can own a home. For example, if you can pay $1,500 a month rent without getting kicked out of your apartment, you could have bought a $250,000 home. That's what's available to you. The question is, why should I do that? Well, first of all, rent goes up, your mortgage payment doesn't. So if you're paying $1,200 a month for rent, Next year, you're going to get a rent increase. You're after that, you're going to get a rent increase. That $1,200 10 years from now is $1,600. 20 years from now is $2,000. Once you have a mortgage, if you have a fixed rate mortgage, the mortgage doesn't go up. Today, we have 2%, 3% interest rates. That's lower than they have ever been in the history of this country. If I had a mortgage at 4.5% but my credit Rating has improved, and the interest rates dropped from four and a half to two and a half percent. That's two hundred dollars a month on that mortgage I just quoted. That's twenty four hundred dollars a year.
0: But Eric, let me ask you this: You make it sound so simple, right? But then when I when I come back and I and and looking at some of the data that's out there, I was looking at something specifically. Uh, the Urban Institute released some data uh, in twenty twenty. And it said that the gap of home ownership in 2020 was 30%, meaning 70% more white homes owned homes than black homes. Or in Hispanic homes or Latinx homes, there was 58%. But you're saying it's much easier to, to get to own a home today than it was in the 60s and 70s. But when we look at this data, they say in 1960, that gap. That home ownership gap was only 27%. So what's going on?
3: The absolute issue is not barrier to owning a home. It's that Black people, Hispanic people, people in disadvantaged communities were never taught or introduced to the notion as to why you should own a home. People aren't getting turned down in those volumes. We're not applying Nobody ever told us the value of owning a home. Nobody ever showed us why owning a home saves us money on our income taxes. Nobody ever told us that if you rent, your rent's going to go up, but your home is not. We've not been motivated or educated as to why we should own a home. Let me give you just one final example or one clear example. If two people graduate school at age 22 and they both get the same job, and they both live in the same neighborhood. One of them rents, and the other one buys a home. And let's say they both pay $2,000 a month because they got really good jobs. If the person who buys a home puts that home on a 15-year mortgage, in year one, they're both paying $2,000 a month. They're both paying $24,000 a year. In year 16, the person who bought a home on a 15-year mortgage has no rent or mortgage payments for the rest of his life. The other person is still paying $24,000 a year. If that happened when they got out of school at age 22, 15 years later, they're only 37 years old. The person who bought a home is rent-free for the rest of his life. Let me tell you what that means. If they live to be 87, that's 50 years. 50 years of not having to pay $24,000 a year, that's $1.2 million that the homeowner won't pay, that the person who's renting will pay. If you can pay rent, you should buy a home. People say, well, I don't have down payment for a home. Mythology. If you can afford first month's rent, last month's rent, and security deposit, that's the same amount it would take to buy a home. People say, I don't have money to buy a home, but we'll spend $40,000 for a four-hour party at a wedding. Instead of getting wedding gifts and can openers and and skillets, do a GoFundMe for my down payment for my home. Every Black person, every Hispanic person in this country should buy a home and put it on a 15-year mortgage.
0: and we'll be back with our panelists Nancy Bieberman, Blair Smith, and Eric Richardson. Thank you for listening to the Great Wealth Divide podcast. We want to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor. JP Morgan Chase is the proud sponsor of the Great Wealth Divide podcast series. JP Morgan Chase has committed an additional 30 billion dollars to address the key drivers of the racial wealth divide and to reduce systemic racism against Black and Latinx people. Learn more about what they are doing at jpmorganchase.com pathforward. I want to bring this back to, to you, Blair Smith, because Eric said something that triggered my thought, and it's about credit and the ability to manage credit when did, When were you introduced to the to the thought process of understanding the importance of building and managing your your credit rating?
2: Well, it, it's interesting, Dale, because even though you know I grew up in a home where I, I was raised in a single family home. My mother had a checking account, she went to the bank. We were pre-ATM, you know, in the seventies and early eighties. And so there was never a a formal sit down to say, "Okay, Blair, this is how you write a check. This is a credit card. This is what there was really no no formal discussion. It was just assumed that at some point, either in school or somewhere that you would that you would learn these things. Now, that's that's not typical of every African-American household. If you talk to some other folks, John Rogers and others, you know, there was a There's a formal sit-down where your parents educated you about credit and borrowing and home ownership. It's very intermittent in our community, I I would suggest that it's it's very scattered. My first credit card I received in college, I, I received my education about a credit card from the lender, from Citibank. So that was where, that was the person that told me what a credit card was, and then even with that, there wasn't a full understanding of credit ratings or agencies that came much later in life through necessity and trial and error. And even when we were doing financial education programs at City back in the early 2000s, a lot of individuals who worked at the bank who were African American would say to me privately, you know what? I work at this bank, but I don't fully understand finance. I know my job. I know how to sit at the teller window and count out and hand out cash to my customers. But if you ask me about my depth of knowledge around credit or or home ownership or mortgages, they shrug their shoulders. I knew investment bankers who couldn't balance their checkbooks. It's an interesting phenomenon in our community. I applaud the efforts in the early 2000s with a lot of the bulge bracket banks to create financial education programs. I am not monitoring them currently now, but I I would say to everyone's point that there needs to be a resurgence of that in order to make sure that we are creating a legacy of, of wealth creation and we are able to put people into homes and keep people in their homes and, and not be subjected to any sort of predatory practices. And and we also need to be vigilant against those efforts that push people out of affordable homes because of taxes and the reconfiguring of neighborhoods so that those people who originally went to the neighborhood and could afford those rents, those homes, those communities, the services are all upgraded.
3: And now all of a sudden they find that they can't afford to live there anymore. I would love to add an anecdote to support uh, what he just said. Before Nations Bank merged with Bank of America, literally the week before they merged with Bank of America, I asked the vice regional vice president of Nations Bank to allow me to teach their loan officers in every city how to do a first-time homeownership seminar that was designed For people who weren't looking for homes, to wake them up and introduce them to the wealth building of home ownership. And I challenged him. I said, if you put a hundred of your customers in a room, let me talk to them for an hour. They will fill out mortgage applications. He said, Eric, I'm going to accept your challenge, but I'm not going to bring in my customers. I got 5,000 people in St. Louis who work for the mortgage company. 95% of my employees don't own their own homes. So a week later, I spent an hour explaining the seven ways that owning a home builds wealth to the employees of Nations Bank Mortgage. And an hour later, 42% of the people in the room filled out a mortgage app without leaving the building. And another 40% signed up for credit counseling because now they had a reason to care about ownership. The secret sauce is education.
0: Right there. The education is the key piece. Nancy, I want to tie the three things that we hear together. If educated on what is available and the discipline of savings is initiated, then the opportunity for home ownership is available. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I could, you know, let me say that. Um I agree completely with that. And I think that each of us sort of are, are come to that, you know, through slightly different routes. So the route that I would articulate is the learning process of adults that, or, or young people as they're growing up, that they need to be thinking about these things, you know, comes about in a variety of ways. It's not always sort of a didactic, a sit down, let me explain credit and home ownership. It's, you know, it's providing various sorts of opportunities, you know, that can lead to that same result. So, for example, in the three developments that WECO has done over the the last 25 years, you know, we've built over 800 apartments and three separate developments, starting by asking women who live in the neighborhoods, what do you need in order to get ahead? You know, we have an opportunity to build a building that's apartments. What else? And the things that we're told, you know, and specifically what else, you know, asking neighborhood women, how do you make ends meet? Uh, if you're not an employee of somebody, you know, what do you do to make ends meet? And the things we heard were, I take care of kids in my own home. And that's how i make ends meet. I cook for church suppers and neighborhood events. And a few other items like that. But those are really the core elements. Taking care of kids, you know, home-based small businesses, little micro enterprises, and cooking in homes were things that people were doing. It was happening already. And so what we had the opportunity to do is to say, you know, we've got this big building here. It was a former hospital in the Bronx. It's been abandoned for 25 years. What could we do in addition to apartments to help the women in the neighborhood advance those small enterprises into something that was you know more family sustaining over a long time that could lead them in the direction of home ownership if that's something you know that they wanted to do and so we created a 4, thousand square foot commercial kitchen in our first development that you know small food producers could rent they could the, the kitchen was you know, health department licensed, which means if you produce something there, you can legally sell it. You can sell it to a supermarket, you can sell it at a farmer's market, you can sell it wherever you want. We also created a program that trained women to become licensed home based child care providers. The licensing, again, opens them up to sources of revenue for providing child care. That wouldn't have been available had they just remained informal caregivers we created a, a head start center that served thousands of children over the years so these sort of opportunities that exist in buildings that one can use to provide you know important
0: steps well, i think that that's a good thing and i think what what you're talking about is the importance of understanding what the individual In those communities, needs and then helping them figure out how to reinvest in their communities. And part of what many many financial institutions uh, acknowledged in in the '70s was that they had been doing that thing that we talked about redlining, and they had been blockbusting, which is where they they kind of encourage other white families to move out of neighborhoods where uh, where black and Latino families may be moving into, and then steering new buyers away from specific neighborhoods. And so Community Reinvestment Act was initiated. And part of that was to, to eliminate some of these things, but also encourage lending in these spaces. Eric, I want to come to you just relating to those things and the Community Reinvestment Act. What are you seeing banking institutions doing utilizing uh, CRA dollars to, to invest in communities that have been underserved, that is?
3: I think that's an important question, and I'm going to start with some comments that uh, Nancy made, which is there are all kinds of ways that people have to bolster their income, and bolstering that income to pay their rent would also be the same income they need to own a home. My best friend uh, for life, actually I've known for 48 years, grew up in the Bronx And when I first visited him in 1975 at his parents' home, they owned their own home across the street from Co-op City. So even as far back as that, but because they owned their own home, they built wealth in equity. They built wealth in appreciation. They built wealth in savings and taxes. His dad, his mom was a stay-at-home mom. His dad delivered the mail on foot door to door. He was a mail carrier, but he owned his own home. And when they retired, he sold that home and bought their retirement home in Florida and paid cash. So to Nancy's point, however, whatever side business you have to do to make ends meet, those same ends could have bought you a home. The next point that I would make is that from a Community Reinvestment Act fund, you are all correct. There's a lot of leeway in how banks Fulfill their responsibility under the Community Reinvestment Act. And some of them have done some amazing programs with regard to accessibility to home ownership. Most of them cannot find enough ways to invest money to fulfill that requirement. I heard from a board member of one of the largest banks in the United States two weeks ago. He said, Eric, to be honest with you, We can't find enough places to invest in helping people have access to home ownership. So most of us, in order to fulfill our requirements, at the end of the year, we just buy bad mortgages. But that is not what the Community Reinvestment Act was created for. I can tell you that in cities all over the country, banks have used the Community Reinvestment Act to pay for education from companies like mine and including mine. To teach people about home ownership. Banks want to invest in their communities under the CRA Act, but we have to raise our hand and say, I'd like to play.
0: So what's happening is, and that's a good thing, banks are investing more into the education and understanding of things such as credit, home ownership, and how home ownership can lead to wealth creation. And also home ownership is actually an investment. And you talked about the gentleman who's a friend of yours whose parents were a homemaker and a postal worker and was able to take that one investment in a home to then sell that and then pay another investment, which is their retirement home, and pay it in full. I think that right there is something that if we begin to educate people on, on what home ownership can lead to, I think they will begin to understand the importance of Taking the dollars that they may use to get a very high end apartment somewhere or buy a vehicle, they can take and put that into into a home and invest in that home and then grow that. There was a, a another article I was I was reading, a CNBC article uh, written by Courtney Conley. And in that and it was actually a video in that video, you see a, a young man who's from Brooklyn who's telling the story of his family, but also other family members. In Brooklyn, who all kind of lived a very small radius of each other, maybe on the even on the same block, and how how important that was to his own psyche and understanding of what home ownership could do, but also how it's led to people like himself and his cousins being able to look at home ownership as an investment. And, and I think that that's what really this comes down to. I want to ask you all two things. First of all. I'll come to you, Nancy. How can we, our listeners, how can our listeners find out more about your organization? And what do you think is going to be the biggest impact your organization will have on Black and Latinx communities within the next two
1: to five years? Um, People can find out about WEDCO's work at the organization's website, org. And there's a lot of information about the building that I just discussed, as well as our two more recent buildings. One is a large, um, it was the first um, affordable green Energy Star building in the United States. It's still up and running 15 years later. And in terms of the next two years, we recently finished a 300-unit building called Bronx Commons, which was rented up last year. Middle of the pandemic, which is not easy, that building will have a K through three school located on the ground floor. And what WEDCO is, is doing, and you know, this is the culmination of probably a decade's worth of work, we're opening up a cultural venue called the Bronx Music Hall. It's a 15,000 square foot space with a theater where there will be music and music classes for kids, orchestra, jazz. The organization has been running a Bronx Music Heritage Center for nearly a decade in a small storefront in one of our buildings. And finding out, frankly, nobody's surprised, that there was an incredible wealth of musical talent in the neighborhood, not just today, but going back decades. And over the process of the last decade, elected officials, borough president, have been naming streets right and left in honor of musicians who made music, lived, and were successful in the Bronx. So we see part of what Wedco does is to restore memories, uh, good memories of things that happened in the Bronx before the disinvestment and abandonment, which was the fault of nobody who lived there. You know, I, I don't think that can be said enough. Disinvestment and abandonment was something that was done to that neighborhood, the redlining, everything happened and continues to affect the worldviews and aspirations. You know, there are, I think that there are more limited aspirations that people have than they could be having. So I, you know, I I completely agree with the conversation about opening up people's minds to homeownership as a real option. And I think that the ways that that happens, whether it's early childhood education opportunities, whether it's opportunities for women to develop small businesses that they already seem to be doing and want to do, and whether it's, you know, cultural institutions that can, you know, that can already and will continue to be sort of the fabric, you know, of the neighborhood. Um, I think all these things go into believing that one has a right Really, I don't mean that in a legal sense, but it is a legal sense too a right to own a home and a right to aspire to things that people like my family have aspired to. I mean, I started out in a house in a family. My dad was a, a GI in World War II. He had one of the great mortgages, 30 year fixed rate mortgage from, as a GI. And, you know, they were able to pay off the tiny house that we lived in in West Philly when he was in his mid 40s. You know, they had no money, you know, was zero money. It was a zero money down, you know, 100% financing. That's the kind of opportunities we ought to see today.
0: I think it's important what you said there is the investment in the community is beyond just owning homes, but it's the other things, the introduction of the arts, the introduction of other things that, that create the fabric of a community. I think that's so important. And I thank you for sharing those thoughts because it takes me to Eric, who I, I want to better understand how can we find out more, uh, our listeners find out more about your organization, better understanding of where they can get access to the Decisions Decisions uh, educational platform. Where, where where can they do that? And that's one question. And then secondly, what is your goals over the next two to five years in impacting Black and, and Latinx communities?
3: Thank you for that. It's Growth, G R O W T H, growthdevelopment.com, and click on personal finance. Very clearly, our goal is to bring 10 million people a year out of living paycheck to paycheck and into building financial security for their families. I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you, Eric. And last to you, Blair, I'm going to ask
0: this question in a different way. You are sharing your knowledge in many different ways when it comes to not only home ownership, but the value that investment in specific communities that are Black and Latinx can have on, a, on entire cities. And I know that you've written some pieces. You could tell us a little bit about where some of your writings can be found. And then secondly, I know that you're teaching, specifically teaching students on some of this. So share some of that and, and let us know where we can find you
2: well, sure. Thank you, Dale. And again, I just want to say that I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss these issues today. You know, as you know, I'm very passionate around the challenges that uh, African-Americans face with regard to both commercial and residential real estate, particularly affordable housing and home ownership, because we know that that is a pillar of uh, success in American culture. Real estate is one of the oldest asset classes. It is the aspiration of most families today to be homeowners because that is the way to uh, build equity within the community and, and to create generational wealth. So with regard to where to find information on what I'm doing, I, I've been I was fortunate uh, to be given the opportunity to be an adjunct uh, professor this last semester at, at Columbia business school. And and I lectured in social impact in uh, real estate investing. I certainly wouldn't expect our listeners to try to pay the hefty tuition that comes with enrolling in a class like that. So you can read the business case that I was given the opportunity to write while lecturing, which is called Doing Well by Doing Good. And, And it gives it an outstanding example of how you can successfully, within the construct of inclusive capitalism, you know, create affordable housing. It it outlines the efforts of a developer in South Central Los Angeles to create a very inclusive affordable housing fund. They built 1,500 houses out there, wonderful neighborhoods, community was cooperative in, in their efforts. They made a point to create a double bottom line as well as Uh, Executing successfully on corporate social responsibility. And you can find this uh, case on the Caseworks website. Uh, I also frequently post on LinkedIn, and you can find me under Blair Carl Smith, articles and references and information that will lead you to learn more about the efforts of affordable housing and workforce housing developers. And I think we're seeing a paradigm shift in this more cooperative landscape of banks, community development financial institutions, minority deposit institutions, Black-owned real estate developers, and mainstream real estate developers, in getting together and curating a more customized, affordable workforce housing solution that is beneficial to low and moderate wage earners, to essential worker wage earners to working class workforce wage earners and and because of i i think i stated before this huge demand you know there's there needs to be a, a million affordable housing units built in this country in order to sustain the demand but i see it all as slowly moving in the right direction it, it the momentum needs to be sustained and perhaps even picked up a little bit, but
0: um, I think it's all going uh, in the right direction. Thank you for that, Blair. Eric Richardson, CEO of Growth Development Associates and creator of Decisions, Decisions Financial Education Platform. Nancy Bieberman, founder and president emeritus, Women's Housing and Economic Development Corporation, WEDCO. And Blair Smith, founder and CEO of Promethean AB Strategies and former CIO of Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone. Your efforts to drive change and lessen the wealth gap is not overlooked and is much appreciated. We again would like to acknowledge our sponsor. JPMorgan Chase is proud to sponsor the Great Wealth Divide podcast series. JPMorgan Chase has committed an additional $30 billion to address the key drivers of the racial wealth divide and to reduce systemic racism against Black and Latinx people. Learn more about what they are doing by going to jpmorganchase.com pathforward path forward. The Great Wealth Divide is a WBGO Studios production. Mike Sargent is our producer. Eric Nguyen is the creator of The Great Wealth Divide and executive producer. I am your host, Dale Favors. We'll be here next Wednesday with the fourth episode in the series of The Great Wealth Divide. Look for us wherever you listen to or download your podcast and also at WBGO.org. So long.